Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. And since we moved to the two-episode-a-week format, I think everyone's kind of gotten used to having Tuesdays be interview episodes and Thursdays be a solo episode of me either sharing fraud news or talking about topical topics or deep diving into a specific fraud issue like BNPL fraud the last two Thursdays. And now I'm switching it up on you, hopefully just this one time. But truthfully, I lost track of time and didn't realize that I hadn't scheduled an interview this week. I had one scheduled a couple weeks ago and then I had to move to a different week. And I just, anyway, there's a lot going on. And I think all of you can relate to that. I think with everything going on in the world and news being hard to handle and fraud being up, which is what I'm going to be talking about a lot today. And just overall overwhelm from the last two years and just exhaustion and all that. Everyone can relate to just uh, missing a detail or two. But I did my best to put together a really solid full episode. I'm not going to go to the extent of interviewing myself because that would be weird. But over the last several weeks, I've commented that you guys have been sharing with me that fraud is just skyrocketing. And it's not like it happened overnight, but it's been a buildup over the last probably six to eight months. But the last two months, especially, it just seems like there's a lot of overwhelm. So that's what I'm going to talk about today is just it's clear that online fraud for e-commerce and fintech are rapidly increasing. And I'm going to talk about my perspective of why I think that is. What are some things that have really changed over the last couple of years that are changing the face of online fraud, probably indefinitely contributing factors and all of that as well as what can be done about it. And then at the end, I do have some advice for those of you that are in sales. And as you listen to this, you may be getting excited and that the need is stronger and it is, but I have some advice for you before you go running off and making a hundred phone calls or 500 emails or whatever it is. <laughs> Please know, I think sales are very important. Just we need to have a balance. So how do I know that fraud is increasing so much? So many reasons, but just I listed off a few. And one is that my inbox is full of messages asking why is this happening or something to that effect. Some fraud teams have put a freeze on time off similar to the holidays for retailers. So some fraud teams have just said, hey, we have to freeze PTO right now, which I don't think is sustainable. I know it's not sustainable, especially because a lot of people are now planning trips and vacations. Now that the majority of COVID is the risks of COVID are lower, whether that's because people are vaccinated or they feel like they understand more precautions, etc. So that's causing a problem. Data scientists are definitely the most busy trying to analyze the data and tweak scoring systems, though not every, honestly, not many enterprise e-commerce companies have their own data scientists. So that also applies to the data scientists working 
for fraud solution providers. According to the latest LexisNexis true cost of fraud survey, the cost of fraud has gone up 47 cents on the dollar just since 2019. So that brings the total cost of fraud for every $1 of fraud, it costs an e-commerce or fintech company $3.60. That's insane. I remember when that number was under $2. Um, I think I want to say the first time I remember it was like $1.86. And then I've been reporting on this for years, either in presentations or when working with clients, especially when talking with business leaders who don't totally understand payment fraud, when you're able to put this into this kind of verbiage where, hey, for every $1 of fraud that your company doesn't stop, it's going to cost your company $3.60. That's pretty impactful. But that number was $3.13 before just last year or maybe two years ago now. Sorry, I just realized 2019 is not last year. Wow. <laughs> Told you there's a lot going on. And also, according to Ravelin's latest online fraud survey, 62% of merchants are seeing new fraud types emerge. I am surprised it's only 62%. But to be fair, not every business model is hit in the same way. It definitely is. It varies based on company quite a lot, even within verticals. Like I've been working with a newer fraud solution that is transitioning from banking to e-commerce because they have a solution that I think works well for some fraud types. And I've been working with them on understanding more about verticals within e-commerce, just Taking one vertical, for example, like event ticketing, not all event ticketing companies are the same. Some are ticket brokers. Some are really just the two buckets are primary and secondary, and they have two completely different issues, different inventory, different everything. So even though they're in ticketing, they have very different problems. Same goes for retail, right? And you can have a retailer sells office supplies that will have different types of fraud than a company that sells you know, clothing and shoes. And then even within clothing and shoes, if you have especially sneakers and I've had Diana Gajic Physic from Finish Line and JD Sports on the podcast a couple times. And she uh, actually the most recent time she was on talked about sneaker bots. And we talked a lot about uh, special release items. Those have their own breed of crazy fraud more than clothing retailers that just have the same items all the time. They're not saying, hey, we're releasing this special sneaker on Friday at 9 a.m. and there's 2,000 left. Like that has a completely different fraud model. And then we get into name brands and everything else. Like I'm going down a rabbit hole, but mostly to explain that all of this stuff isn't going to be universal to every company, but every company is seeing an increase in its own way. Some of the factors that go into how fraud tactics and methods and just the ways that fraudsters work and the tools they have and the level of sophistication they have and all of that. Some of the things that they're dependent on is the product popularity, as well as the ease of resale or monetization of the item. So obviously we can all think of electronics or popular coffee makers or popular sneakers, but there's a lot of other things that fraudsters have figured out how to monetize and something that e-commerce companies learn fairly quickly is once someone learns how to monetize their product or service, those bad actors aren't going to go away overnight. They're going to keep trying other tactics even when you first identify their first tactics because they now have a customer base that they built up. And I've heard about it from Everything from water filters to building supplies, you know, it's not just the popular brand name items. They, honestly, and this is something that Brett Johnson used to say all the time, but it's very true. If you as a business can make money off of a product or a service, 
soaking fraudsters, especially if it's through online delivery, whether that's digital or shipping carriers, etc. Other factors include the delivery method. Is it digital, which means instant usually? Is it retail? Is it in-store pickup? Is it carriers, all of those factors go into the different types of fraud you'll see, as well as the average order value. Merchants that have lower ticket items are primarily going to see a lot more card testing than higher dollar items, for example. Um, just seeing if the credit card works to then go somewhere else. There's just various different methods that go along depending on how much the item is. Similarly, if you go the opposite end and we're talking about five, ten, fifteen thousand dollar items, that's going to be different too because not all credit card bins have those high limits. And so those can vary as well. Your business model matters. Is it subscription? Is it one time? Is it just all the different types of business models there are? Obviously, the vertical, like what you're selling. The fraud prevention tools and methods that you use. I've talked about this before, but there have been a few uh, specific fraud methods that target very specific fraud systems, often legacy models, because they know the ins and outs and they know the vulnerabilities of those fraud systems. Sometimes they're name by name in criminal chats and other places. Other times they do trial and error on various sites. And I will start to see this pattern of merchants all using a similar fraud provider having X problem that nobody else has. That doesn't happen too often, but it definitely has happened. So you can't take the fraud analyst out of the girl. So just because I'm not analyzing fraud patterns all day doesn't mean that I'm not picking up on trend analysis when people are reporting issues to me. And unfortunately, that can be a through line. Whether that's your core fraud provider or a verification system, not all providers are the same, just like in any free market economy. Just you're not always going to be the same products and the same value and the same service. And then also another factor is the value of accounts. So do your customers have air miles or any kind of points, loyalty points, stored payment method, credits on their account? Those things will also make your company a target for more account takeover type fraud. So all different types of factors going into fraud. So before I continue, I'm really looking forward to you hearing about our latest sponsor. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. 
Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Over the last few weeks, I've been formulating some theories or hypothesis around why this is happening. What are the contributing factors to e-commerce and fintech fraud pretty much exploding in the last several months, just really going up in a curve sort of. And I've had these three core ideas in my head for the last week or so. And just as a gut check, I posted it on LinkedIn today and just asked what today is in the day I'm recording this, asking other people what they think is happening, what factors are contributing to this increase in volume and sophistication. And just in the past like few hours, I have 16, 17 comments, and almost all of them are saying the same thing. And that's definitely my number one. And that is the COVID relief from stimulus fraud, whether it was PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program, unemployment, EIDL, which was through the Small Business Association, et cetera, that was available in the U.S. specifically, has really created several problems within the fraud market. And so that's probably what I'm going to be talking about most today. I will share the other contributing factors that I have identified as what I think is impacting it as well. But I think this is probably one of the biggest ones. So one of the impacts of COVID relief. So even though I guess I should backtrack a little bit. So when COVID relief was live and available, we in e-commerce actually saw a pretty big dip in fraud attacks. I specifically remember on the holiday season of 2020 on the biweekly retailer call I host, a few people saying, is anyone else not seeing as much fraud as you would expect? Like, when's the other shoe dropping? That kind of became our joke, right? Is there another shoe coming? And unfortunately, I think that shoe is here now. It's like a year and a half later, but it's a delayed shoe, so to speak. But it's dropping. I I think I just heard a collective eye roll from the future. <laughs> Sorry, guys. It's Friday afternoon and doing my best. So when COVID relief was happening, a lot of the types of businesses that were seeing fraud on their end were banks and financial institutions for new account fraud, whether that was synthetic fraud, identity theft, setting up new accounts to receive unemployment funds and PPP, et cetera, because it was almost all through ACA. There was also a lot of money mule activity. It was just really bad in the banks then. But now that those COVID funds are essentially gone and, and can't be applied for anymore through the U.S. government anyway, now we're seeing this ripple effect in e-commerce and fintech that I think, and I have a lot of validation from the comments on this post that I'm not the only one that thinks that has created such a big impact. So one of the impacts of COVID relief stimulus fraud on e-commerce and fintech is it really created fraud venture capital. As one example, this is something one person commented on here, and I really appreciated this comparison. As an example, venture funding, venture capital funding for cybersecurity sector, and I believe that includes cyber fraud as well. Last year was a total of $30 billion. In just two cases that the Wall Street Journal investigated uh, that they covered with the Secret Service, 
They found over $100 billion in losses in just two cases, and Forbes is estimating that it's at least $400 billion in fraud, and that's probably pretty conservative. I've talked about it before on this podcast, so I'm not going to go into it too much, but I did work with one of the states in unemployment fraud and saw some crossover in, and I will talk about that in a minute in a little bit, but saw some crossover in some other fraud with the same people at the time, but now newer fraudsters cut their teeth on COVID relief fraud. The fraud venture capital is primarily like professional fraud syndicates and they've invested some of that. So if we just take Forbes estimate of $400 billion and we just take even 10% of that, if they just invested 10% back into pro-fraud, not anti-fraud, but in updating their systems, hiring people from Stanford and MIT to create new scripts and systems and databases and all these other things for pro-fraud technology, that would be $10 billion more than legitimate funds that were invested in the cybersecurity market last year. This is a ton of money being able to impact more fraud and create more fraud. They're getting a return on their investment, so to speak. So I mean, that's it. They really are armed with a war chest with more tools, more sophisticated scripts, malware. They've been hiring top cyber experts, you know, and uh, writing all kinds of crazy things and then also employing and training more people, getting more effective in a lot of different ways. So this should be terrifying, and it is. And I think myself and Frank McKenna and Marianne Miller and others have been saying that for a while, but and Jake Emery as well. I think fraud venture capital actually comes from him. He's now at Nice Actimize, so I think I can shout him out in a good way. But those people have really been bringing this to the forefront, myself included, but now we're seeing it in action in a lot of ways. But then the new froster, fraudsters that they learned how easy it was to commit fraud and how hard it was to get caught. And they pretty much cut their teeth on COVID relief fraud. And now they're out in the wild. They're really well trained now in identity theft, synthetic fraud for creating new account fraud. Really, they call it fake accounts, which is just all of it bundled up into one and are creatively training each other to commit fraud that can often be undetected. Another problem with new account fraud, you've heard me say it before if you listen to the podcast regularly, is this conflict of interest internally within new companies that are venture-backed because a lot of a company's valuation, a a technology company's valuation is on number of users. So when there are so many fake accounts going through a system, it can be almost impossible, even if the fraud team can identify those, to purge their system of them because that's overinflating their valuation and the rest of the company doesn't want their valuation to go down. I talked about this quite a bit when PayPal announced that they had closed 4.5 million accounts that they had tied to one specific fraud attack with fake accounts, but we're sure there's plenty more where that came from on every system. So they're, they got really good at creating fake accounts for unemployment, for PPP, et cetera. So now they're just transitioning those skills into e-commerce and some fintech as well, especially BNPL and consumer lending and different sectors like that. So now they're trained and they're venture backed essentially, and they're coming for us. And I really feel like I need to have some scary music here or something. But like I said, banks have been overwhelmed with new account fraud and money mules for COVID relief fraud for the last two years. And they're now using the term fraud fatigue. Marianne Miller actually mentioned in the comments that I know some banks are reporting fraud team fatigue as a key risk for their risk registry. 
The pandemic big money grab trained a whole new generation of bad actors, and the fraud is growing in both public and private sectors. I couldn't agree more with Marianne. I wish I could disagree. I wish that there wasn't truth to this, but somebody else commented underneath that fraud team fatigue is indeed a real issue, which was accelerated through the pandemic and the fact that for many teams, the job turned into a 24-7 firefighting with less and less time to recap and reflect. And that is so true. That I think are like is the biggest contributing factors to it. And we see it a lot because a lot of the people who were committing stimulus fraud utilize telegram and discord especially some reddit here and there but it reddit's pretty good about taking it down when they see it so telegram and discord are really the primary places and you know i've been studying telegram especially for the last two years and have seen huge crossover in the same people who are committing unemployment fraud are also committing refund fraud and other payment type fraud and manipulations and exploits and all of that. They're definitely cross training themselves, so to speak, and, you know, working on that way. So I kind of wrote out these lists and these are probably things that would end up on PowerPoints if I was presenting this somewhere. But I was as I was writing these down as far as like old sources of fraud methods and tactics and where they were getting their information compared to now, I was thinking about this slide that I used to have when I presented at events like from 2016 to 2018 or 19, they talked about old hacks versus new hacks. And it was really around how EMV really changed the course of online fraud. So prior to EMV being implemented for card present, online fraud was fairly simple to, to see. And data breaches were really focused on credit card numbers because they would clone them and other things like that. But then the target breach and the Home Depot breach happened and fraudsters or the hackers in this case realized that that data that they stole only had value for a short period of time because credit cards could be canceled. And so that realization, in addition to it being so much more difficult, if not impossible, to counterfeit cards for in-person fraud, we saw this shift in what fraud looked like and fraud tactics and all of that. Uh, it was right around that time that we started to see a lot more account takeovers. There was just more happening. But we also started to see breaches, which really was the data source of where before fraud is, before data is monetized, it has to be compromised. So the data was at that time was often compromised through data breaches. And we saw the old hacks, so to speak, focusing on card numbers and all of that. And then new hacks were focusing on insurance companies, the OPM, the Office of Professional Management for all federal employees in the U.S. That breach included everything from mother's maiden name and birth date and social security number and address and all of that to psychological exams and fingerprints, depending on the military level. So that was terrifying. And they were able to do so much more with that data that led to more new account fraud on the banking side. It led to account takeovers and other things like that because they had more information about the person. So I remember very distinctly just how much the implementation in card present really changed and shifted the type of fraud we saw as well as the volume. Uh, and I think this is no different. I think this is another really big shift. And I don't say that lightly. I'm not trying to be hyperbolic or anything. I think Anyone that knows me knows that I'd much rather downplay something, but at the same time, you can't fix something if you don't understand the severity or just how important it is. So that is why I am putting so much, I put so much time into making up this list today. So 
just going back to what I would consider old sources of information to monetize, and this is probably from like 2016 to 2020 or so. And I should say, just because I'm calling them old doesn't mean that they're not still happening. It's not like it's a light switch and we're just going from one method of fraud to another. It's more like a dimmer switch where everything's gradually shifting. So you'll still see these things, just they're not the one often the older ways of committing fraud are the ones that your fraud system are going to catch. The newer ones are are exploiting essentially a little bit older systems. So older sources of information included data breaches and databases. Tactics would include brute force attacks or credential stuffing for account takeovers. Fraudsters or bad actors would communicate via dark web forums, purchasing fulls. Oftentimes they were professionals, professional criminals, professional fraudsters. They often would be self-taught and know everything from point A to point Z within the specific type of fraud that they specialized in. And the cat and mouse game moved slower than it does now. And now fraudsters are loving building synthetic ID profiles and identity theft, as I mentioned, for those fake accounts. They are exploiting available data and social engineering. So that can be in so many different ways, whether it's social engineering and call centers, social engineering, potential victims, social engineering, or carriers in general, shipping carriers in general. Account takeovers are now happening via malware, so much more than credential stuffing and brute force. If you didn't listen to the episode with Robert Villanueva a few weeks ago, he's an expert in cyber fraud, specifically in Eastern Europe, as well as Latin America. And he and I talked a lot about this idea of malware getting into so many devices uh, in the Western world and reporting back to a host computer every time an infected device logs into a system. So that could be your bank, that could be your favorite airline, that could be a retailer, et cetera. And it's not just providing the username and password. It's they, a lot of the malwares are providing full session data, the cookie information, the browser language, the browser version, the, you know, screen size, the language, like all the things within a device ID that we've become accustomed to rely on in the last several years are now being sent to the source computer and they're compiling them either by person. So they might say, here are all of the accounts we got for this one person and, and package it up and give it to someone. And they can just wreak havoc on every account they have. Or they're saying, here are you know, 572 accounts to this company, go at it. And oftentimes then an emulator is used and the emulators are so much more sophisticated than they used to be to make it really look like the real account holder is logging into your system as a merchant or as a fintech or as a bank. And these are wreaking havoc there. I think that a lot of the systems for account takeover that have been created over the last several years are built to detect or prevent credential stuffing as well as some brute force. But now when the bad actor has all the same information as the device that the real user logs into your site all the time, makes them look a lot more legitimate. There's even a couple of the malware family that allows bad actors to log into the infected device and place orders from the infected device without the user knowing. That's terrifying. Yeah, so I mentioned more sophisticated emulators. There's also just more sophisticated bots as well and scripted attacks or non-human attacks, depending on how you word it, which are much harder to detect. Payment fraud isn't the only fraud method now. There are many other ways to 
get items for free from different types of companies, depending on the business. I'll be talking about that soon. Methods and training are available as well as fraud as a service. And this allows newer fraudsters to piece together. They no longer have to know all of the pieces from gathering the information all the way to cashing out. They can now specialize in one piece and either resell that those that expertise or supplement their expertise with other people's. There are online training, there's manuals. That's always been the case. Like the fraud Bibles have been around for like a decade, just different versions. But now you can go on and especially in Telegram, there's all these like job postings and things for refund shops or boxing shops or other types of fraud as a service where technically you may not even need the one committing fraud, right? There's the, you guys watched that episode of Generation Hustle on HBO Max. I mentioned it before. I think it was called Scam Rap. The guy who they followed was saying that, you know, that it would be very hard to prosecute him because he's not actually committing the crimes. He's just rapping about how to do it step by step. Now, granted, somebody had to commit the crime in order to provide the method and the step by step. But that's the way he, this guy's making millions of dollars by technically not committing identity theft or not committing credit card fraud in theory. That's just one method of fraud as a service, the training aspect and others. I even saw an internship for a fraud shop the other day. It's just like, wow, you guys, they're getting so legitimate. So there's boxing services for refund fraud. There's refunding as a whole. You can now just have pay somebody to manipulate shipping labels to make it look like it went somewhere when it didn't. You can buy points and gift cards from people who have drained accounts, usually through account takeover. You can buy stolen accounts. You can do buy for you, which basically somebody commits fraud for you and you just pay them a fee. You tell them what you want or where you want it. Generally, it's usually what you want. Like a lot of times it's items that are sold in multiple retailers and they'll find the most vulnerable one to place the order. You give them your address and information and then you just pay them a percentage of the order value. That percentage is higher than for refunding, but certainly a lot lower. If you're paying 40% of cost to somebody to steal an item for you, you're still saving 60% off of MSRP. You're stealing 60% off of MSRP. Let's be clear, it's not savings. You really just don't have to be an expert anymore. You can watch tutorials, you can follow methods, you can buy methods. There's people within Telegram, they're just selling methods for specific companies. There's other shops that are selling accounts to different shops. It just really depends on what that fraudster wants. But it's just this overall shift in what I'm calling Gen Z fraud. It's a younger generation of fraudsters and they're really, they're complicating things because traditional fraud systems just aren't really set up for their creativity and the creativity of these digital natives. So newer payment fraud methods will include account takeover via malware and accessing the card on file. I just mentioned, went into deep diving about malware earlier, but those are much more popular than credential stuffing these days or at least more effective. By using real cardholder email and or address, emails matching systems used to verify users are becoming more and more prevalent in various ways, including the buy now pay later fraud method I mentioned on Thursday's episode where sellers are quote unquote selling items on marketplaces just to get the cardholders information and opening up I know pay later account in their name. So there's just a lot of a lot of different methods for getting the true cardholders email or the true users email that matches everything else. I, I think that overall 
e-commerce and some fintech reliability on services that use public records for email verification has definitely gone up. Adoption with those services is sky high. Visa bought one and MasterCard bought another. It's the companies that are popular and being used with almost every e-commerce company on you know, enterprise level. And unfortunately, uh, fraudsters have started to realize that. So they're starting to access the real cardholder's information. And so a fraud system may say, well, they're using the same email that they've been using for four years and everything else matches. So it's good. Uh, that's something that's been happening quite a bit, especially when uh, I work with companies to do chargeback root cause analysis and, and looking at what fraud was missed. That definitely has been upticking. And that's not to say that these aren't still important tools. I do think there are other ways through data collaboration to in a privacy filled environment to do this better in the future. But these tools are still important. It's just that the reliability shouldn't be as strong as it has been. We've been able to rely on these systems for emails for years, but it's hard to know exactly how or when or what, but it is becoming more prevalent to see fraud using the real user's email address when creating new accounts and looking more legitimate. Friendly fraud and first party fraud via chargebacks is still a go-to. We're seeing it in a few different other ways, especially paired with identity theft. Talked about that with Gil Rosenthal several months ago on a previous podcast episode, but that's definitely going up as well as just fake accounts in the masses, whether that's synthetic or identity theft. And as long as no company is reporting these fraudulent accounts to credit bureaus, such as payment method that doesn't include a credit check or accounts made with e-commerce sites, the true users and the true owners of that data may never know that they were being used for that either. So uh, that can also add to false positives and people being on negative lists that shouldn't be and just a whole mess of issues. There's also more non-payment fraud methods. So not really stealing a payment method, but still committing fraud still creating a loss to the company. Refund fraud is definitely highest on that list. I have talked about it for years. I think I was the first person, you know, first expert, so to speak, to talk about this on a bigger scale. And I will be doing another episodes shortly, like in the next few weeks, about some of the newer refund fraud tactics that merchants have been seeing and some of the companies I've worked with have experienced. According to the Ravelin report, re refund fraud was up around 60% in retail last year. And that's what's trackable. One of the hardest things about refund fraud is that it's often post-transaction fraud. So the fraud team isn't always involved in it. Oftentimes the point of exploitation is either customer service or the warehouse. And so it's really hard for fraud teams to get their arms around it, to understand it, to even know, okay, we have this giant bucket of refunds, but which one of these are fraudulent and which one of these are legitimate? So it's just that is huge for any company in retail. And even companies that have no return policies, they're starting to see alternative payment methods being exploited, especially ones that have buyer-friendly policies around, you know, if the buyer says that the item wasn't received or that it wasn't as described, they're taking the buyer's word for it. And oftentimes these are very high dollar transactions, over $10,000. And somebody can just call and say, I received this dish towel instead of the designer handbag I ordered on this marketplace. So I should get all my money back. And most of the time that alternative payment method will find in their 
favor. And I recognize that that's a challenge for them as well. But I personally believe that if they were to put a little data analytics behind it and look for some patterns of behavior, they would find a lot of consistencies and through lines. One of the things about intentional fraud is that oftentimes you can identify the intentions via systematic behaviors and uh, traits and identifiers. And so that's one thing I've put into place in identifying refund fraud with the companies that I work with. Promo fraud abuse is really high as well. That includes referrals, affiliates, stacking promotions, loyalty promotions, just all of that. There's probably going to be a lot more of that before there's an end to it. I have started to see a couple of reputable fraud companies starting to tackle it in a good way, but I think that there's a lot of room for improvement across all of the industry. And really, the first step is for merchants to be looking in on that. Really, it's just about payment fraud anymore. It's really about revenue protection. So having that lens rather than just looking to prevent chargebacks is going to serve your company well. And then also for marketplaces, a seller fraud is going up quite a lot. So that might be sellers that claim to sell something when they don't, similar to the buy now, pay later example used earlier. That could be a lot of different things. There can be collusion involved, money laundering, et cetera. But that is an area that marketplaces are identifying as a new area that may not include payment fraud, but does impact the company. And then the other thing that's kind of new-ish about all of this fraud coming in now, and I don't want to say fraud 2.0, it's almost like fraud 4.0, really, honestly, if we're looking at versions. But then we, I think a lot of us would have debates over the different blocks of time for the versions. So that might just be like a fool's errand. Just try to do that. But this newer fraud methods also often rely on exploiting multiple systems. They might exploit alternative payment methods like mobile wallet fraud, which talked about last week with the guys at Ravelin. The mobile wallets that often end in pay. It's hard to identify the funding source. And oftentimes that funding source will change often in a fraudulent situation. So fraudsters have realized why instead of, you know, making it look like to the merchant that we used six different cards to try this order, we'll just try the same mobile wallet six different times. And it just looks like the same payment method each time. There are other variations to that too. This is just more simplified. Buy now pay laters have much less barrier to entry than credit cards, in part because they aren't checking credit reports. There is at least one that's starting to require social security number. And I think that if I were a betting person, I would say that's going to continue, especially with the U.S. Congress and the CFPB, the Consumer Consumer Protection Bureau. Sorry, I'm Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. I That's what the F stood for. They're looking into buy now, pay leaders, So that may be something that some of them are adopting willingly to prevent credit risk fraud, which as I mentioned on last week's call or last week's podcast on Thursday is that the majority of them believe that the biggest loss to their companies are credit risk. I have very strong suspicions otherwise, but based on a lot of data and information that I have, but overall, it's just much easier to commit identity theft when there's a lot less stipulations. There's a lot less barrier to entry than getting credit cards issued in somebody else's name or bank accounts or other things. 
there's just less of a KYC process there. And then PayPal, buyer-friendly policies on their disputes have been a real problem for merchants as well. Especially lately, it just seems like it's because fraudsters are very aware of it as well. It's all over Telegram, but that is something that I know that they're working on. And then carriers and outdated shipping carriers for companies that have physical items, those systems are pretty easy to exploit and refunders especially have proven that to be true over the last few years in manipulating tracking numbers or shipping labels, in knowing that they look at some things over others and understanding their processes and their policies. Some refunders have even gone so far as understanding where kind of the weak drop-off points are or the distribution centers where some won't check certain things or others or they're easier to get through with manipulated tracking IDs. Just they're really exploiting outside systems, but it still impacts e-commerce merchants. It still impacts the company in a loss. So that's why it's important, right? These are things that are often outside of the merchant's control, but are still going to impact your bottom line. So that really does require working together. I was really encouraged that one of the main shipping carriers had two people attend the MRC two people that really want to help merchants in this and they see it every day and they're kind of have their own initiatives to do so but it's a start and one that I am you know looking forward to connecting them with the retailers that I work with to try to find some solutions there so in addition to covid impacts you know there are other factors too one is russian sanctions i talked about this a few weeks ago there's just more fraud attempts on digital currencies since the end of February, right around when Ukraine was invaded by Russia. And there started to be lots of sanctions on Russia and the Russia economy has been going down in value. And that means that Eastern European cyber criminals are targeting currency and digital currencies that can be transferred over to their accounts. So that can include crypto, e-gift cards, in-game currency, top-up phone cards, other things like that. E-gift cards are also seeing a spike in money laundering activity, and that's something that isn't necessarily regulated, but I've been working with a retailer to try to understand what they need to know more about. And then I also got in touch with or got put in touch with somebody at the Department of Justice that's working on money laundering as well. Uh, once they get back from vacation, I'm looking forward to talking to them. And I definitely invited them to the podcast. I just don't really know what the Department of Justice's policies are on podcasts. So let's keep our fingers crossed. Additional factors, inflation and the blooming recession. Uh, it'll create more consumer demand for cheaper products, which fraudsters will steal those items to fill that need. Like I said, it's not a savings, it's a stealing, but not always the end customers who are buying these items on secondhand markets and marketplaces and other places like that, they don't always care. They don't always ask, you know, why am I getting this for half off the regular price? Uh, and unfortunately, when the economy goes down, that's usually what happens. Additionally, I think I've mentioned this before, but in 2010, when the recession, the last recession was at its height, that's really when we saw friendly fraud go up so much in the U.S. And a lot of that's because of the consumer mindset in the U.S. that people still want to be able to indulge in travel and luxury items and others, whether they can afford it or not. And so they'll kind of go into that gray area and they might dabble in refund fraud where they won't do it professionally. They might hire someone else or they might 
try to claim that something wasn't delivered when it was. These just create areas of opportunity. Uh, and then there's also potential for scarcity, which would increase the number of people that are fraud curious, right? They're thinking, what am I going to do if I lose my job or my hours get cut or something like that? Oh, I think I saw a post about this. Like, I want to find out why my friend gets, you know, these sneakers for so much cheaper and then resells them. Or I want to know how somebody does this or I'm going to look on Telegram and see. I mean, really, you can pretty much choose your own adventure on Telegram and be educated within a few days if you know what to look for. There's another one that somebody uh, contributed to this LinkedIn post I did that actually I hadn't thought of before. So giving credit where credit's due, except for they're a merchant. So I'm not going to call them out. Let me just refresh this because I saw it on my phone a few minutes ago, but I want to read it to give them that credit at least. They said PSD2SCA, SCA's Secure Consumer Authentication, has probably pushed a lot of card fraud out of Europe to paths of lesser resistance. Squeeze one end of the balloon and it expands at the other. I hadn't thought about that, but absolutely. I, I do work with some international clients, but most of them are, I'm working on their U.S website. I don't always think about EU and other APAC and LATAM as much as I should. So I very much apologize to my international listeners and want to do a better job at covering that. We did talk a little bit about PSD2 SCA on last week's interview episode, but really it's regulations in the UK and the EU around using 3D secure 2.0 or other strong authentications rather than just authorizing the payment. They need to authenticate the person who is making the purchase. And anytime they put more secure measures in place in one part of the geography, that fraud's going to move to the path of least resistance, the part of the stream with very few rocks. And that would be the U.S. For so many reasons. I think I talked about on several episodes ago, but just how it's different, why there's so much fraud in the U.S. And it's a multi-factor reason, but it's very clearly is the fraudiest place on earth, at least in e-commerce. I think that's a really good point. That is another contributing factor to the increase in fraud. I am flipping the page here. I don't like to provide a problem without a solution. So what can we do about it? Or you can continue to analyze your data and track your KPIs track chargebacks, track, you know, your acceptance rate, dive into the details, try to figure out what's really going on. And then once you identify that vulnerability that's being exploited, then work to find a solution, whether that's technology or process or policy or hiring a consultant. I just raised my hand and I'm not sure why I'm not on YouTube. This is not meant as an advertisement for me, but I certainly can provide an outside perspective that can be helpful to merchants as well as to, you know, select solution providers. Evaluate current fraud tools. Are your current fraud tools catching what you need them to? You know, are they dedicated to innovating their solution or do they seem to be more focused on an IPO or an acquisition or something like that? And that's some real challenge that some merchants are having right now with their providers. Are your current fraud providers providing the best customer support that you need and even extra support? Are they volunteering information? Are they saying, hey, we're seeing a fraud trend over here on a similar account or a similar e-commerce site as yours. Have you ever taken a look at this or that? Or maybe they're diving into Telegram for you, or maybe they're partnering up with a company like Q6 Cyber that can provide lists of compromised accounts long before they're used or whatever it is, those extra things. And solution providers, are you doing those things to keep your customers? Because there are a lot more customers and merchant customers looking 
for new solutions. And I've seen in a while, unfortunately, with this huge increase in fraud, it's a challenge for them to have time to evaluate new solutions. But that's definitely been the case the last few months anyway. Learn about new fraud fighting technology. There are new solutions created every year, and some of the newer ones have been created by former merchants or by people who have been in the industry a long time and just asked a lot of questions about what what was needed in the space. My current and newest uh, sponsor, Spectrust, did that. They've been in the industry for a long time, the co-founders, and they started attending merchant collaboration events as members and started asking questions about tool would solve your problems. And that's why they created this no-code platform that allows merchants to access multiple fraud tools while just being connected to one. Finding out what's new, what what's new and capable, what problems they solve, how are they solving it? Do they really understand the problem or are they just claiming that they do? Some companies are offering module projects, products to stack with core fraud solutions so you don't necessarily have to swap out your core fraud solution. There are other complementing services and tools that you can put on top of it. And depending on your volume, it can be an incremental cost that can provide a lot of value. Keep up with your peers through organizations like the Merchant Risk Council, the upcoming Marketplace Risk Summit, which I will be speaking at, and the CNP sessions at NRF Protect in June, which I am also going to be speaking at. So I'll be at Marketplace Risk Summit in May and NRF Protect in June. Communicate new issues and pain points to senior leadership. Make business cases for more resources. Explain to them, use the data from these surveys that have come out, Ravelin and LexisNexis. And I know the Merchant Risk Council came out with a survey recently. Use that data to show them, hey, fraud is going up very quickly across the industry. It's not just us, but we need to prepare. If it's going up 60%, we need to invest. I mean, I would say 60% more. Work with internal teams to identify silos that are being exploited and offer strategic advice. This is specific to refund fraud, but it can apply to other areas too. But just in this example, customer service and the warehouse are generally the points of exploitation for post-transaction refund fraud. But you can work with customer service and your warehouse to say, or your distribution center, fulfillment center, whatever you're calling it, to work with them to say, hey, this is what people are seeing. You know, are you having that happen? If so, how can I help? Have you thought about this? What about that type of thing? I'm adding one more bullet that I didn't have on my list, but... Because I am a fraud fighter who has experienced significant burnout, I'm just going to say, and I know it often falls on deaf ears, but try hard to rest and relax and give your team time to do that too. This is going to be a marathon. This is not a sprint. Unfortunately, I don't think the fraud's going anywhere. So obviously the best thing to do is to invest in the best solutions so you don't need as much manpower. But that takes a lot of time depending on you know what service you're using and all that to be gentle with yourself. Just speaking from experience, I don't want anyone else to have to go through the physical, mental, and emotional burnout I went through several years ago. I'm still dealing with it in some ways. So lastly, I promised this and don't want to end this episode without providing it. A word to salespeople in fraud technology. There's a really popular comic out there that I'm not going to describe it to do it justice, but one of my fraud provider clients showed this to me uh, the other day, and it just, I keep picturing it now. And that is, it had two cavemen that were rolling something on square wheels, and there was a guy with a circle wheel that said, hey, I have something that can help you get there faster. And the two cavemen said, no, thanks. We don't have time to change that out. That's really a lot of what fraud sales are right now. 
you may be, you and your products and your services may be needed, but there may not be a lot of time to put them in place. Honestly, I'm just constantly always thinking of like problem solving, which comes in really handy in consulting projects. But sometimes it's just like, why do I spend so much brain power on this when it doesn't matter as much, but it can work to partner and work with implementation hubs like Spectrust or like there's others coming up too, but I think they're kind of the main one for enterprise working with partnerships with other companies that are complementary, you can do that to help ease the burden of implementation for merchants. So it'll be easier for them to get a product, you know, faster and on board. But really be aware that your prospects are busier than ever and you're not even close to the only salesperson reaching out to them. So be patient. I know there are some people that just don't respond to emails. It's not personal. It's because they have to prioritize and they probably get like 200 emails a day in addition to eight to 10 hours of meetings having a team to manage and looking at the data and everything else. Like it's evaluating vendors is not a full-time job within a fraud organization. There are some companies that actually have product managers. That is their job, but it's not as common as you might think. Do your homework on the specific issues that each vertical and business model has and how your solution fits and helps them. If your solution or service won't make an incremental impact, move on to someone that it does. This is something that really is been a big issue lately where it seems like salespeople are more concerned about getting a brand on their website as a user or, ooh, that would be a big brand because I'd have a big commission split, but not thinking about is my product best for that person, for that company. And I know when you switch that around, you switch your mindset to how can I help the most people and how does my tool, my product help specific companies, then you're actually going to make a difference and people will see that difference. Remember that you're selling to people who identify ulterior motives for a reason or for they identify ulterior motives for a living. So keep that in mind. Keep your motives pure if you want to be taken seriously. That goes along with my next tip. Be truthful about the capabilities and limitations of your product and service. Lying about capabilities or exaggerating to get a sale will likely do more damage to your brand than the amount of a contract or two. I cannot tell you how many examples I can think of just off the top of my head of when this has happened. And, you know, that saying, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Yeah, hell hath no fury like a enterprise merchant scorned too. What, spent eight months trying to get your system in because they thought it would solve a problem that you said it would and then they get it in and it doesn't? Don't do that. Again, marathon, not a sprint. Offer your help to get merchants and fintechs in touch with similar businesses, whether they're your clients or not. Don't be nosy about it, but like some people can go over the top. But if you are talking to a prospect and you have a client company that you know would be happy to talk to them that has similar issues as them, you can definitely offer that up as a resource. Educate yourselves on these new fraud flavors, so to speak, and become a resource for them. Really get to understand the problem and the solutions and what's going on. One way to do that is the podcast. I also do work with a select group of solution providers on e-commerce go-to-market strategy, as well as educating on e-commerce and verticals and what problems they have and how your product can solve those problems. Because I actually feel like that's also a service to 
to e-commerce merchants and I have a pretty darn good track record. You know, I know that it has been helpful. Um, and I've heard that feedback from friends of mine that are e-commerce merchants. So that's always validating. If your company can't realistically reduce a specific problem like refund fraud, stop contributing to the noise in blog articles, conference sessions, PR, earned media, et cetera. It goes along with bad impressions. There are a couple of companies. I'm just going to keep using refund fraud as an example because it's just so easy. There are a couple of companies that talk often about refund fraud, you know, whether it's at conferences or in their marketing materials, emails, blogs, et cetera, webinars, but they don't actually have a solution to solve it. And when I talk to the merchants that use their tool, they say it, it really hasn't helped. Maybe it's just helped reduce it by 10%, but it's not enough. That company or those companies don't actually understand refund fraud and how it works and what the real core problem is. They're looking at it in a different perspective and just haven't taken the time to really study it and understand all the tactics. And then if you put this in place, what they're going to go to next, et cetera. So stop talking about things that you don't know how to fix. It contributes to the noise as well as it impacts your brand as a solution provider. I still owe you guys a, I realize this is a free resource, so I don't really owe anyone anything, but I do want to put together overall vendor tips and all of that, but those are just a few specific to this fraud emergency broadcast system or whatever it is to understand because I know that it can seem like, oh my gosh, there's so much fraud. My system and solution can help fix it. And you might be able to, but just keep in mind those tips and they will serve you well, I promise. So with that, I have successfully filled an hour of your time on this topic, but I hope that you found it interesting and that you are not asleep now. I'm looking forward to your thoughts and anything you would like to add to all this information. And I will look forward to speaking with you soon. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.